Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Ernest McGowan, who is the author of African Americans in White Suburbia, Social Networks, and Political Behavior. The book is published by Kansas University Press in 2017, and I have the real pleasure to have Ernest on the line today. Ernest, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on and to have this uh, really interesting book to talk about. Thanks for uh, Before me. we talk about it on the podcast, we usually let uh, the author uh, do a brief introduction. So maybe you can just share a little bit about yourself, where you are now, where you've been in the past. Tell us about yourself. I am Ernest McGowan III, um, a University of Texas PhD. Um, got my PhD in 2011 and started at the University of Richmond, I do basically political behavior, uh, race and ethnicity, campaigns and elections, a little bit of media. Um, I teach random intro to American government, uh, methodology, research design, and classes like that. So just your normal behavioralist. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the book is um, really interesting, very timely. And, and I think takes on something that, that I have noticed, which is a lot of people talk about um, the demographic change that's sort of a, a, a influencing politics. And they talk about it and then sort of stop there and move on to something else. You're really kind of digging into that in an interesting way and in a way that, that many others uh, haven't, um, which is, which is the, the geographic movement of African-Americans around the country into places uh, that are new in in terms of the numbers uh, that we're seeing, and so for that reason, I think the book is just so, is so uh, was so interesting to read. So, I wonder if we could start our conversation talking about that, which is what we know about the geography of of African American life, um, and and how that has changed, and then we'll get to the uh, the very interesting things about political opinion and, and political behavior, but sort of what about this this argument about suburbia and and the increasing suburbanization of African Americans? It was really interesting when I started um, graduate school. I read an article, and basically, geography or place, as we say, structures environment, and your geography affects how you behave, whether or not you consciously or explicitly interact with that area. And so it was really interesting to see how, particularly for African-Americans and the long history of segregation, how that environment has actually changed and been one of, and gone from one of forced interaction with your co-ethnics to one where now you have the ability to live in a place that may be nicer, but also may not be reinforcing to you culturally. And so it is a, it's, a, it's a temporal phenomenon that's actually happening with the increase in um, socioeconomic status for Blacks. And so it was 
interesting to me to see how that actually affects one's behavior. Now, when you were going into the project, uh, as you just described, um, what were some of your expectations about this change? Because, you know, you approach this as a political scientist, not as a, um, a geographer or demographer. Uh, so you're interested in sort of the, the impact of, of these, this suburbanization. What did you expect about the, the political behavior and political opinions uh, of those people who were uh, moving and, and locating in new communities? What did you, what were your uh, sort of, what did you go into this thinking? Well, as as I'm sure you've heard millions of times, as empirical observers, we just watch our environment and then expect to extract laws from it, expect to extract theories and see if the uh, see if the phenomena repeat themselves. And so I was around a lot of people who lived in majority white areas and consciously made an effort to reinforce their racial identity by um, seeking out majority black networks and also um, um, felt a felt their minorityness more often than they should have felt their minorityness in their homes in their neighborhoods in their workplaces and things like that and so you would think that that's going to have an effect on their behavior and so the goal was just to see if this was a real thing, you know, and so that's what the book set out to do. The book set out to actually call the data and see if this effective environment and group consciousness always uh, group consciousness, the idea that you uh, have a strong identity with people of your own, um, in this case, race, and therefore you think things that the perception of society also affects the perception of you. Uh, people with strong um, group consciousness would actually behave in that manner and have more racially radicalized opinions. Yeah. Now, you in the title, you mentioned social networks, and you just allude to the importance of, of networks for political behavior. You divide up the kinds of networks that you care about in the book into a couple of different categories. So for the people that you study, what are the most important networks that they may have um, been a part of in their past? And, and what are the new networks that they might join into? And what are the ones that they can kind of that, that transcend uh, place, as, as you say earlier? So tell us about the social network dimension of this project. Right. Well, the idea of import is actually interesting in that we all prioritize different aspects of our lives and try to maximize them. And so the importance may be having your kids in a very good school, right? The importance may be living in an area that does not have a lot of crime, that may get a fast police response and, and nice lawns and things like that. And so that kind of material importance, getting the best job possible, maximizing your salary, where is your commute, where, you know, what kind of um, development can you get in that job? That's one kind of importance. And then there's another kind of importance that comes with what I call the reinforcing of your identity. What makes you you? What kinds of information do you receive that helps you behave in a way that reinforces your identity? What kind of things are going on in your community? What kind of things are going on in your culture that 
reaffirm who you are. Like the Beyonce um, video that just came out, the homecoming is a perfect example, right? Things that you have to watch, even though you may not really care about watching them because it reaffirms that you are a part of this group. And so there was this striking duality between the kind of networks that you're involved in that fulfill that kind of material purpose, a good education, a good house, less crime, stuff like that, and the networks that actually reinforce your identity. And the problem is, or not a problem, but the 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 real strain is, and this is where the theory comes from, is that the networks that you're in most often are not the ones that are reinforcing to your identity as an African-American, as a Latino, Latina, right? As an Italian person, right? We talk about white ethnicity, right? White ethnics. And so if you are a Jewish person, you want to be in networks that reinforce that identity. If you are Italian, you want to be in networks that reinforce that identity, right? And so it's not just about African-Americans. African-Americans just have a, a, a particular circumstance. And so that's what I was really trying to play off of. What happens when the places you're around most often you don't like, you need, but you don't like, and then how do you behave in ways that make you more okay about yourself and your identity? So if this is some of the foundation and some of the sort of theoretical approach to this, what, what did you do in the project? What are the kinds of data that you used in order to tease out the, these relationships between uh, identity, uh, 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 group association, networks, and, and place? What are the data that you used here? Well, that's actually one of the things that um, I'm working on hardest for the next project. So the the data that I use was not designed to answer my question. And so unfortunately, I had to work through instruments that weren't particularly conducive to what I was trying to do. So I had one instrument that asked about the actual racial makeup of your social network. So what is your workplace? What is your uh, the racial ma- uh, network of your neighborhood? What is the racial network of your home? And they asked race questions, didn't ask a lot of political questions. I was also able to have original data on um, on an instrument to ask specific questions about how do you feel about your networks? How do you feel about your workplace? How do you feel about your neighborhood? But the sample was directed towards uh, competitive congressional districts. And so there weren't a lot of African-Americans at all and definitely not a lot of uh, suburban African-Americans. I was also able to use the American National Election Study for a lot of my data. And they had okay racial questions, great political questions, but the suburb question was actually done by the interviewer. So it wasn't self-identified suburbanness. And so we're moving all these parts to try to pin down a phenomenon that I'm not exactly sure is there. 
and also not using instruments designed to figure out if it's there. And so um, and so I'm glad in the end that there was a trend that definitely they showed the kind of differences in behavior of suburban African-Americans versus urban African-Americans and suburban whites. And also those suburban African-Americans that choose the racially reinforcing networks like, per se, a black barbershop or a black church and things like that versus those that do not. And so um, and so I'm happy how it turned out. But there's there's a lot more meat on that bone. And and, and the next project, as as we're working through it, is probably going to be um, the data are going to be a lot better for that one. Yeah, and then given these limitations, and, and you were very humble in presenting what you found, because what you found was really, really interesting, especially given some of these data limitations. But at one point in the book, you write, and, and I, maybe you just sort of talk about how you got to this conclusion, which is, uh, you write, and let me, let me just sort of quote, uh, the confluence of suburban residents and race does, uh, does appear to have an independent effect on the racial opinions of suburban African-Americans. Their opinions are much closer to their urban co-ethnics than their white neighbors. They also hold a more racially radical ideology. What do you mean by that? And, and how did you discover this? Because on the one hand, this, is, this sort of makes some intuitive sense, but is also very surprising. It's very surprising that the su- suburban African-Americans that you study in some ways uh, express a more racially radical ideology than their African-American neighbors uh, in, in non-suburban areas. So maybe you could sort of unpack that a little. Okay, so starting in the 70s, um, and forgive me, but starting in the 70s, there's this idea that as racial barriers become less of a, um, uh, uh, as, as, as racialization, as being Black, becomes less of a barrier to socioeconomic status. So no matter how smart you were, you were never going to get that good job. No matter how industrious you were, you were never going to get that loan. No matter how hard you worked, you were never going to live in that neighborhood just because you were black for no other reason, no merit whatsoever. And so once we get to civil rights movement, there begins to be this idea that as those barriers go away, and it is your aptitude, it is your industriousness that actually translates into success, success being a good house, a good job, things like that, that you weren't going to be as acute to racial differences, racial disparities, and racism, because effectively, you weren't going to be hindered by it. The people in that are still in the segregated neighborhoods that do not get those kinds of educations, that do not have those opportunities, they're still going to be in a really bad place. But once you move to the suburbs and your white colleagues are actually embracing you as an equal, you aren't going to feel the same need to have that cohesive political behavior with those who are still in those segregated areas. So, but that whole theory relies on the absence of discrimination, racism, and if you will, white supremacy. And so the whole theory is based on the idea that once you as an African-American show your merit, 
and your merit being the ability to move into these suburbs that you won't need being African-American as such a strong part of your racial identity. And of course, what we saw through all the 90s, all the 2000s, what we see to this very day is that's not the case. So then the question becomes, okay, who is going to be experiencing the most discrimination, right? Who is going to feel the perception, even if it's not real, right? Even if it's not real, the perception still grounds the behavior. Who is going to have the perception that they are being oppressed, even in their success, by this systematic racism, by this systematic idea of white supremacy? It's not going to be the people who are around other black folks because the people who are around other black folks, their oppressors seem to be other black folks. We look on black on black crime. We look at um, who their bosses are when they're working menial jobs, things like we look at who are the uh, people running their uh, failing schools and things like that. And so they don't even have the experience to know that this whole other thing is out here in a lot of cases. It's those people that are in the majority white networks who actually have people look at them crazy when they drive home, right? Who actually have to change their hairstyles and their way of speaking and their uh their their cultural sensibilities in order to fit into this norm of collegiality that is rooted in maintaining the status quo right and so those people who are highly educated and therefore have the ability to read websites and uh look at the news and all those other things the the question was they should be more perceptive of the level of dim, of discrimination and therefore more likely to say things like, yes, discrimination persists. Yes, uh, a government should help African-Americans actually pull themselves up. Yes, we should have affirmative action steps in order to um, uh, equalize racial disparities. Yes, mass incarceration and things like that. Because, precisely because they're in an environment where their minority status is more stark. Yeah, one of the really interesting findings is the type of political participation that we're interested in. The way we typically think about this is in voting. And if I'm if I'm uh, describing the results correctly, suburban black voting, voter turnout is is less than suburban white and also urban black. Uh, voting participation. But when you look at other types of political participation, the relationships shift. And suburban African-American participation in attending government meetings, protests, and so forth is actually more than suburban whites. Am I reading your findings right? And how do you make sense of this, the the two different faces of political participation that we, we sort of sometimes assume go hand in hand, uh, but in this case seem to be decoupled. Right. Well, so voting is about representation. And so what the, the real drill down finding is, is that the levels of participation are equal in presidential voting, but they roll off as you go down the ballot. So they're less likely to vote for their congressperson. They, they literally walk into the voting booth, vote for president, 
and then walk out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't even vote. And, uh, and the only thing you have to do is just press another button, right? But you don't think that that person actually represents you. And so the alternative forms of behavior, like you say, attending meetings, really donating to candidates, working for minority candidates and things like that. Do you think that Blacks should always support Black candidates and things like that? Those are ways to reinforce their identity with their higher resources. They have the time, they have the money, but not necessarily voting in a suburban district where even the Democrat is going to be more conservative than you, right? There's no reason to vote for someone that's more conservative than you. And so if I can use my resources, I can go with my sorority and do the get out the vote drive, right? I can go with my church and take people to the polls and things like that in a district where that black mayor doesn't represent me or that black house of delegates member or state house member doesn't represent me, but I can still prop them up. That's a way of me using a political behavior to reinforce my identity, which is the same as voting. But these suburban African-Americans have the higher socioeconomic status to be in these kind of organizations and have the money to donate to black candidates in Chicago or wherever it is. The book, again, is African-Americans in white suburbia, social networks and political behavior. The author who you've been hearing from is Ernest McGowan III. Uh, The book is published by Kansas University Press and available widely. Ernest, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.